Hey guys, welcome to our podcast, Glimmers of Truth. I'm Elise Mason. I'm Grace Borson. And I'm Eliana Rudio. Today we're going to be talking about the theme of redemption. As Charlotte Bronte says in her book, Jane Eyre, there are grains of truth in the wildest fables. So we're going to be looking at the books that we read throughout our junior year, and we're going to be seeing how most of our books follow the storyline of a redemption story pattern. So every redemptive story starts with um, status quo or the normal, and then there's a rupture, so a conflict or a problem that leads to a further descent towards death or destruction. And then the story twists and there's an ascent or a rebirth where the story turns up and then there's restoration and often this is portrayed in a book through a feast or a wedding. So we're going to take a trip through history and see the ways um, that truth can be seen even through fictional stories. We're going to start off in the 700 AD with Beowulf, which is an epic poem which was originally written in Old English, but there's many translations and we are using the Burton Raphael version. So the poem highlights the story of Beowulf, who's a brave warrior gifted with almost supernatural strength who uses his abilities to defeat monsters. He first defeats Grendel and Grendel's mother for his neighboring country of Denmark. And when he returns to Gateland, where he's from, he eventually becomes king. And then he serves in Gateland for 50 years before encountering another enemy. This enemy is a dragon and has been disturbed, and he makes his decision to fight despite his older age because he fears for his people's danger. Um, he once again achieves victory, but he eventually loses his life during the battle. So this story does not really have a clear redemptive or failed redemption story pattern, but you can see Beowulf as sort of a savior for his people. Um, he could be compared to Christ in a sense, although he does still have human flaws because he's not actually a god. Um, he understands his duty as king and is ultimately um, wants to protect his people even though he is really old. So it says in the text that his soul sensed how close fate had come, felt something, not fear, but knowledge of old age. So he is aware that um, he is getting old and he might not be able to survive, but he still wants to protect his people. Just like Christ wanted to protect all of us, even though he knew that sacrificing his life on the cross was the only way to do that. I think this is a really good um, book to look at because some books have a clear redemptive story where a character finds restoration at the end of the novel and it's really easy to see that. But in Beowulf, it's not so easy to see that and there's still we still can make a parallel um, from Beowulf to Christ and how he sacrificed his life when he went to fight the dragon for his people just as Christ came to earth and sacrificed his life on the cross for him, his people. So that's just a cool um, way of looking at a story instead of finding like, like a clear um, 
redemptive pattern. And Beowulf still incorporates the same themes that are found in redemption stories, such as good and evil, with Beowulf being the good savior and evil being Rendell and the dragons. And in the end, just like in a redemption story, um, good wins out over evil. So that's another cool thing, even though this redemption um, story is not super clear in this um, epic poem, um, there are still the same elements of a um, redemption story. Yeah, we see um, he says also in the text that no one else could do what he means to do. Not a man but me could hope to defeat this monster. No one could try. Like, the, you can see like how that parallels Christ because in Second Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No one else could have defeated death and sin on our behalf besides God himself. And I think we still have to recognize that in the story, Beowulf is still just like a human, and he probably has his own faults. But when we look at different parts of it in different quotes, it's such a clear um, representation um, of Christ and what he came to earth to do. So it's really cool. Yeah, and so we can see that through 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, um, that shows that we are sinful humans and we are unable to defeat sin without um, the atoning power of God. So um, Beowulf, again, is this Christ-like character who um, defeats um, sin, which is basically encaptured in Grendel, and by killing him, he is the savior-like figure, even though he is not Christ, because he is human, he still has those Christ-like qualities. Another good thing to know is that um, just as Christ came to earth and was not only the final sacrifice for everybody, but he was such a great leader and he led the disciples, and he was an example to many people here on earth, and he left a testimony. Um, Beowulf is a really reliable um, leader and king for his people, and you can see how the Danes trusted him and relied upon him um, in their times of struggle, and so he was just, that's another way that he mirrors Christ, and that he um, is a significant leader. I feel like that's true. He kind of brought the Danes and the Gates together into like friendship, like just as like Christ brings all nations at, into fellowship and community. Yeah, and um, going back to the quote that we started with um, from Beowulf that says, his soul sensed how close fate had come, felt something, not fear, but knowledge of old age. Um, this, I believe, is similar to um, Jesus in the garden before he um, was crucified because he wasn't afraid to die, but he asked his father in Matthew 26, 42, that says, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. So it's the same thing of Beowulf um, he's not afraid he's going to conquer it in the same way that Jesus, um, he wasn't afraid and he was going to do what God had told him to do.
So now we're going to jump to the 1600s because we're going to look at Macbeth, which was written by William Shakespeare in 1606 during the rule of James I. So Macbeth is a story about a noble man and valiant soldier who morally declines as he faces um, or embraces vice. So when the three weird sisters, or the sisters of fate, reveal Macbeth's future of becoming king, Macbeth initially decides to wait on his destiny rather than taking fate into his own hands. But after his wife, Lady Macbeth, entices Macbeth to hurry his fate, Macbeth kills King Duncan and becomes king of Scotland. Soon, his best friend Banquo questions Macbeth's involvement in the murder. So Macbeth kills him out of fear. Macbeth's guilt begins to haunt him, and he is unable to find restful sleep. And after Macduff, a noble, kills Macbeth, Malcolm, King Duncan's son and heir to the throne, attacks Macbeth's palace, restoring peace and prosperity to Scotland. So even though Macbeth is considered a tragedy because it um, ends with many characters' deaths, in some ways, it's also a redemption story for Scotland because Scotland escaped from Macbeth's rule and was able to have a rightful ruler. So um, we're going to look at the quote that, said, that Macbeth says, I have lived long enough. My way of life is fallen into the seer. The yellow leaf and that which should accompany old age as honor, love, obedience, troops of friends, I must not look to have. So this quote is explaining how Macbeth knows that he has failed to find redemption because he knows that um, if he had found redemption, he should have honor, love, obedience, troops of friends, but he is not able to have this because he has not found redemption. Just going back up, and when you said Macbeth's guilt haunts him, I think that's just such a strong point, and you can see that in a lot of the novels that we've read. It's just that when someone has an urge to do something wrong because all men are corrupt, and we're told that in the Bible, just because of the fall, we our hearts are corrupt, so we seek after sin, and actually what happens when we do pursue sin instead of what is good and what is moral, we have so much guilt from it because we know that we're not supposed to be doing that. And that's our conscience. And that just proves that um, we need redemption and that we are fallen in sinful humans. I think it's like an important point to, that's a good point to make that like everybody feels guilt and it weighs on their heart until they try to find a way to either cover it up and that leads to more and more sin that you see where characters fall deeper and deeper into corrupt things because they are afraid that if their sins have been revealed then nobody will accept them and they will ultimately fail. And a lot of times it's when people are at the lowest of the low, they hit rock bottom, and that's when they find true redemption. Instead of seeking after earthly possessions or earthly significance, it's when they come to the bottom of themselves that they finally find what they're looking for. Yeah, and I think Macbeth came to this point 
but he decided not to take redemption and instead he tried to hide his sin by um, killing more people. Um, he killed first starting with Duncan the king and then he tried to kill the king's sons and he even killed his best friend and even after his best friend's son because he was afraid of um, his sin being found out. And um, after he killed Duncan, he said, we are yet young indeed. And that's because he knew that now that he'd killed someone, that he was not going to take redemption anymore. This is a good point to look at. And through Macbeth and many other characters in this poem or play, we see that he is a failed redemptive story, but when we look at the broader picture, it's actually a redemptive story for Scotland because there's peace brought to Scotland through all of those deaths, even how like horrible that is, that there is still redemption in the story. Yeah, when there, when the when Macbeth goes off on his killing spree, all of the people in Scotland are terrified and they think that Macbeth is just going to rule forever and they're going to be lost in this cycle of corrupt and sinful practices. But then there's still people who are fighting for the prosperity of Scotland and they come back and they try to we <laughs> they try to save Scotland, which they do by destroying Macbeth and his simple heart. Yeah, when Malcolm comes and kills Macbeth, at the end of the play, he says, By the grace of grace, we will perform and measure time and place. So thanks to all at once and to each one whom we invite to see us crowned at Scone. So even though Macbeth's life may be a failed redemption story, for Scotland, um, it is a redemption story because evil has been defeated by Malcolm who killed Macbeth, the evil, um, the evil king. And I think this is a good point to make because within a story, each character has their own individual story. So some characters may have a redemption story, while other characters or countries may have a failed redemption story. For Macbeth, he had a failed redemption story, but for Scotland, it was a redemption story. And each character um, has the opportunity to either find redemption or to reject redemption. But um, you have to identify the problem first. Macbeth knew his problem. He knew that he had sinned because he was guilty after he murdered Duncan. But he did not know how to fix his sin problem and continued um, his killing spree because he wanted to hide his sin. Because sin and um, guilt just leads to more sin until it's too late to find redemption. Yeah, it's really sad that a lot of people even, not just characters and stories, they 
come to the bottom of themselves and then they're just confused and they think that there's no hope for them and that they're just going to die a sinful human being who has done nothing meaningful and they don't have any hope when in reality they could have um, repented of their sin, looked toward Christ, and he could wash them white as snow. And that's just such an um, amazing promise that we have, especially as Christians, just to know that there is hope for us. Yes, I think it's important to notice that, that even it does not matter how dark and how awful you think that your sin is, Christ's blood and his power over sin is always going to ultimately crush all your sins. Yeah, and I think another point um, that we find through this novel is that, um, or this play, is sin causes a person to hide. So throughout this play, there's a motif of darkness. So um, we see this contrast between dark and light. Um, and uh, Macbeth wants to do his evil deeds in the darkness because if there's light, his evil deeds will be exposed. And that's another way that it shows that he's projecting redemption because um, redemption is often symbolized as light while evil is symbolized as darkness. So um, when Macbeth wants to hide his sin in the darkness, um, he's just really rejecting redemption. Now we're going to go to 1847, where Charlotte Bronte wrote her novel Jane Eyre. Her novel, novel reflects Bronte's own life in many aspects. You can see um, Bronte in the character of Jane. So what I'm going to be highlighting is two main characters, which is Jane Eyre and Mr. Rochester. So Jane Eyre um, was raised by her aunt. She grew up with her cousins, but she was often mistreated by her aunt and bullied by her cousins. She then was sent to Lowood Institution where she was openly criticized by the headmaster and she only found one friend in Helen Byrne. And so I think that this just shows that she went through suffering after suffering, but even though she went through so much suffering, this ultimately helped her to become an independent and strong individual. And the suffering that she endures originally as a child, she has the view that um, it says, um, in Jane Eyre, when we are struck at without a reason, we should strike back again very hard. I am sure we should, so hard to teach the person who struck us never to do it again. And this is just a good point to show that she thinks that revenge is the only way to resolve a situation instead of um, acting in forgiveness. But through her suffering, and she goes through even more suffering later on in the novel, where she's rejected from Mr. Rochester because she finds out that he has an insane wife, so she has to flee and uphold her own morality. But she goes back to her aunt as she's on her deathbed and she shows forgiveness, which just shows her spiritual growth. She says, love me then or hate me as you will. You have my full and free forgiveness. Ask now for God's and be at peace. This just shows that although many people encounter suffering and it can be countless suffering after suffering, 
this ultimately works out for good and it can um, help even other people to see the work that God's doing in your life and how it's helped you grow. Um, and we see this with Jane. But I think this shows redemption, but the true redemption in the story is through Mr. Rochester. So when he finds out, when Jane find out, finds out that Mr. Rochester um, has an insane wife, he opens up his past to her, and we see that it's filled with sin and depression, and he's at the point in his life where he almost commits suicide. And that just shows that he had hit rock bottom and he had nowhere else to go. But through this suffering, he discovers that desire and pleasure will not bring lasting satisfaction. So we see this when he says, I approached the verge of despair. A remnant of self-respect was all that intervened between me and the gulf. In the eyes of the world, I was doubtless, covered with grimy dishonor. So he thought there was nothing left for him. And then I think through Jane coming into his life, she almost had this influence in this. He could see her morality when she said, I can't stay with you because you already have a wife and I'm not going to... Um, do that because of my own strong moral beliefs and that was probably just a light to Mr. Rochester but it's only when he, Mr. Rochester goes through his own suffering which is he his insane wife his wife dies and he is left blind and a cripple and crippled and Jane returns to him and he says, I thank my maker that in the midst of judgment he has remembered mercy. I humbly entreat my redeemer to give me strength to lead henceforth a purer life that I have done hitherto. So his despair left him totally hopeless and through his suffering he finds redemption in Christ. And this is a clear parallel of Galatians 2.20 that says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this just shows that Rochester is now recognizing Christ is his redeemer and that the most important thing is that he wants to live his life for Christ instead of um, dealing with sin. He wants to turn away from sin and pursue greater things, which is redemption through Christ's blood. I think we see with Rochester the same thing that we talked about in the last book, where he reaches his rock bottom, but instead of hiding and keeping his sin like still hidden, he brings it to the light and he shares it with Jane and they have their little moment and she uses her respect for God to bring her away from Rochester for the time being, but in the same way Rochester now has he's free of the guilt of that because it's in the light and then he can only move forward with his life that's a good point to make it just shows that when we bring our sin out into the light and when we share it with others they can really help us to turn away from it and to fix that problem because it's really hard to resist the temptation of sin but when we reveal it then other people can help us to change, and that's when um, the path towards redemption begins. Yeah, and I think um, there's a theme throughout this book that goes between Rain, uh, Jane and Rochester, and we see that both of them have gone through quite a bit of suffering because Jane, um, throughout her growing up years, and then um, Rochester, even with his depression and being crippled, 
both of them hit rock bottom before they are able to uh, see their need for redemption. And I think that's an important point because it's often that we have to hit rock bottom before we see our need for a savior and our need for redemption. So they are stuck in the conflict or the problem and they're descending towards death. But when they see that they're doing that and they see their sin problem, they are able to change and they decide, unlike Macbeth, to find redemption. And that's when they have a rebirth. And you can see at the end of the book, um, Rochester and Jane are happy and they get married and even have a little baby because um, they have discovered that um, to be happy, they need Christ and they need to um, look past their sin and their suffering and find the good through that. I also think that it just shows that when we surrender our lives to Christ and when we just say that we're not going to worry about anything and we're just going to let him take control that he um, blesses us and he gave Jane and Mr. Rochester um, the perfect love story I guess you could say um, and he even started to restore Mr. Rochester and his sight um, was coming back at the end. Um, and another point that is really prominent throughout the book is the suffering that I talked about. Because both characters, it was only through their suffering that they could find lasting redemption. And it's a good point to make that although suffering seems so horrible and terrible in the moment, we can't see the bigger picture. And so we just have to trust what God's doing in our life and know that he has a better plan for us. And we need to just turn our eyes to him and say, I trust you in this moment and I know that things are going to work out for good. And ultimately that is where we find the most growth in our own character. And it's also a light to others that shows that Christ is working throughout many people's lives. Yeah, all of us go through trials and temptations because we're human and that's our sinful nature but throughout all of the things that we go through there's a bigger picture and a bigger plan that might influence someone else who's not who you don't know at the moment and you might be able to speak to their lives or help them sometime in the future when they need it and you don't understand at this moment that this is what you need to be able to help influence other people towards redemption and it really is like a huge influence on other people because I can just say for myself that I when I've seen other people going through trials and I feel so terrible for I feel really bad for them but I can see like their growth through that and also I can see that in my own life I don't have to worry because there is someone Christ who is greater than any of my worries and I can just rely on him when I'm feeling down or when I'm going through a really hard trial. And we can see that through suffering, um, even other people's suffering, um, it is possible to find redemption in Christ through them. Um, because we see with um, Jane Eyre's friend, um, Helen Burns, um, Helen constantly told Jane everything she knew about um, heaven and about God and how that she had hope of a bright future because she had found that redemption and she wanted that same thing for Jane and I think that was a point where Jane started to realize 
that she needed that same redemption. Yeah, it's a good point to make that some people um, can see their need for redemption really easily, and it's easy for them to surrender their lives to Christ, whereas other people, they need that um, suffering, and they need the trials in their life to turn their eyes upon God, because it's only in the darkest times that we find someone to rely upon, because when our life is going really well and we feel like we have everything under control, then we feel like we don't need anybody to help us. But it's only through the times where we're struggling that we look to a higher power to help us through that time. And I think even in the culture today with um, postmodernism and this whole um, self-reliance and self-focusedness, them saying, I can do it, um, I can change um, the way I am, I can be whoever I want to be, it's just putting all the pressure on ourselves and saying we don't need someone to govern our life. We can do whatever we want and whatever we think is right, then we can do that. And it just shows through these characters that we can't do it on our own and eventually they're going to be searching for some greater hope because the things of this world won't ever satisfy and it just shows us our need for a savior. So now we're gonna jump to 19, I mean 1890, um, when Oscar Wilde published his book in a newspaper, The Picture of Dorian Gray. So in his book, Basil Hallward, a painter, um, he paints a perfect picture of Dorian Gray, who is a handsome young man. Um, Lord Henry Watton, who is a friend of Basil and Dorian, is a very negative influence on Dorian and he, it causes Dorian to pursue a life of pleasure instead of what is truly good. So when more changes take place um, in Dorian's life, it turns this painting that Basil um, paints for Dorian to make it ugly. And Dorian discovers that although his physical body maintains the perfection of his youthfulness, the painting represents his sinful soul. Dorian's fascination grows with the change in the picture and he is drawn to sin. Dorian shows Basil the painting, but he does not want to repent from his sin like Basil suggests, and so he murders him. Because of his crime, blood appears on the hands of the painting. Dorian tries everything he can to forget his crime by searching for pleasure, but he is still haunted by his guilt. One night, Dorian decides to destroy the last bit of evidence of his sinful soul by stabbing the painting. Dorian is found dead on the floor with a knife through his chest. He is almost unrecognizable because he is old and ugly, but the painting is changed to its original state. This is a failed redemption story because Dorian dies but never repents. Dorian knew his sin problem because he knew that killing Basil was wrong. He knew that following Lord Henry Watton's advice was wrong. He also knew that to fix his sin problem, he needed repentance and forgiveness. But Dorian did not choose repentance or forgiveness because he believed he had gone too far. He told Basil this before he murdered him. He told him that um, he was too far gone for repentance and there was no way that he could be saved. 
And so he continued in sin because sin just causes more sin. Dorian caused the death of Basil and he even blackmailed someone into trying to further cover up his sin and he even tries to destroy his own picture but he dies in the process because he is just so absorbed in his sin he doesn't even notice how he's dying from his sin and Dorian tries to just further hide his sin by pursuing all the pleasures of this world to try to find happiness and satisfaction. He tries to look at um, tapestries and jewels and religions and philosophies, but he cannot find happiness and he becomes depressed because nothing of this world will ever satisfy a longing heart. This is something that kind of points mankind to a need for redemption because um, we can't find anything in this world that will ever satisfy the hole in our heart that is our need for Christ. And this is similar to um, Solomon in Ecclesiastes who tries to find all the pleasures of life, but in the end, he doesn't find any true happiness um, except in Christ. It's almost as if Dorian, he realizes that he's sinning. And he at the end of the story, he, he wants to fix his painting. He wants to make it beautiful again. Because it's symbol, symbolic of his soul. And he understands that he was wrong this whole time. But he doesn't, he doesn't really know how to fix it. So I, it's almost as if he tries, he thinks he can just destroy all evidence of his sin and become beautiful again. But obviously that doesn't work and he is still left with a broken soul. Yeah, that's a good point. And we see that when he starts to say, I want to change my life, I want to fix the past and what I've done, he tries to say, if I do good things, maybe that will reverse the painting. Maybe if I start filling my life with goodness, then it will make things better. And he does something that he thinks is good, and when he goes and he looks at the painting, he realizes that it hasn't changed back to its normal state. If anything, it's gotten worse. And this just leaves him in a state of confusion. He thinks, that there's no hope for him. He doesn't know how to be redeemed. And I think this is just such a good point for all of humanity to see that when we try to do good, we can't do it on our own. It's only through Christ that we can find this redemption. And Dorian didn't see this and he didn't understand this. So he tried to fix it by destroying the painting, which um, ends up in his death without any um, redemption in Christ. Yeah, and Dorian says, um, when he's talking about his sin and all the regrets that he has, um, he says, each man lived his own life and paid his own price for living it. The only pity was one had to pay so often for a single fault. One had to pay over and over again, indeed. And her dealings with man destiny never closed her accounts. So again, this shows 
how Dorian, he tried to be good. He tried to fix his mistakes. He tried to make up for his sin, but he couldn't do it on his own because sin can never be erased without redemption. And sin just haunts a person. We can see that through Dorian's life. He is haunted by his sin. He is haunted by his guilt of killing Basil and um, trying to cover up all his sin. And we can see that by trying to cover up his sin, he's just making his life worse. The painting gets uglier and uglier every time um, Dorian tries to be a better person or tries to hide his sin. And um, he's just unable to see how to gain repentance. I think another theme we um, see throughout the book is that uh, mankind is fallen and we see mankind's nature in the fact that he's fascinated by sin. And there are so many different quotes um, about him wanting more. And he's almost like he in the daytime he feels guilty um, and he wants to fix it. But then he just is drawn back to sin. And he has these influences in his life, like Lord Henry, that just keep bringing him back to sin. And the book that he is given just makes him go back to sin. And then he keeps sinning and sinning. And it's just this endless cycle. And he can't get rid of that because we are fallen and we are sinful. And it's only through true repentance and the forgiveness of our sins that we can find redemption. Another way that we see human nature in Dorian Gray's life is that he wants to be beautiful on the outside. The, our culture today tells us that you should look a certain way and that you should act a certain way. But he doesn't he doesn't really care about his soul at the beginning. He even says when he sees the painting that he would give his soul to have that appearance on the outside of being beautiful forever. And that's what actually happens is the funny thing is he says, I would give my soul to be beautiful. And he does. He gives his soul up and he's beautiful the whole time. But there's something more than beauty. There's something that's more important, more significant. Um, and that's our soul is that's what's truly going to last and um, we're going to one day nothing in this world is ever going to matter anymore the only thing that's going to matter is our soul so that we can be with Christ and that's why we need redemption and we should seek to find it yeah and just that outward appearance the outward appearance does not determine um, whether a person is redeemed or not it's the soul that determines if a person has found true redemption, and that can only be attained through Christ. Now we're going to move to 1924, where F. Scott Fitzgerald writes The Great Gatsby. This explores the 1920s and the sins of the 1920s through the life of J. Gatsby. So Gatsby is a man of wealth and dignity, but he lacks contentment in his life. He's rich, and he has all the possessions he could ever want, but he wants more. And what he tries to go after is his old lover, Daisy. He dreams of having her for himself. Um, she's already married, but he doesn't care. He still tries to pursue her. And after this is all over and he does um, get Daisy and he um, is successful in that, he finds that this doesn't make him happy. And he says, 
He was consumed with the wonder at her presence. He had been full of the idea so long, dreamed it right through to the end, waited with his teeth set, so to speak, at an inconceivable pitch of intensity. Now, in the reaction, he was winding down like an overwound clock. That just shows that the things that we desire in this world and that we want, um, in reality, when we get those things, they don't bring us contentment and they honestly bring us the opposite of what we were expecting, which is just a letdown. We don't find happiness, we just find that we want more and more. Um, So Daisy only brought him temporary satisfaction, unlike redemption, which brings final peace. Um, And another thing that just shows the meaning, that there was no meaning in his life, is that at his funeral, no one attends his funeral, and this just shows the emptiness that's there. So when we seek for earthly significance or possession, it only leads to futility. And Matthew six nineteen to 21 says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Gatsby thought that Daisy, in re- recreating the past, would bring true happiness, but this did not. And at the, the very last quote of the book says, So we be on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. So this just shows that without Christ, we can never be truly satisfied. And we'll just keep trying to relive the past, but it's not going to um, bring us contentment. And only through Christ and his redemption and forgiveness can one find true happiness and satisfaction. Yeah, and I think... That also is very much the same in the picture of Dorian Gray. Um, Gatsby, he dies, and no one attends his funeral. It's the same, although he has his good looks, and he's rich, and he has everything a man could ever want. Um, Nobody cares about him. Dorian Gray, he is handsome, and he also has anything a man could ever want. But they're the same. They haven't found redemption for their soul. Despite their good looks or their riches, they have not found true redemption. And even in Macbeth, we see that he becomes king, and so you think, oh, he has what he wants. He has um, everything that he's been searching after, but it doesn't satisfy, and so he just keeps searching and searching for more, and this just leads him down a path of sin and murder. Nothing that we can try to give us satisfaction on this world is ever going to really satisfy because we, our souls really desire redemption. We really desire to have fellowship with God and with other people. We want something that we can't have without Christ. Yeah, and we see that Gatsby... Um, he has this elaborate house, and he has rooms and rooms and rooms in his house, and he has lots of shirts and tables and all this other stuff, anything he could want. But it's all dusty. It's just collecting dust. It's showing that he has all this stuff, but he obviously hasn't even been looking at it because it's just dusty. It's collecting dust. It has no significance to his life because it's not bringing... The happiness that he wants he has he tries to have parties to find satisfaction in people he tries 
to buy more things, but nothing is ever enough. And we can even go back to um, Solomon in Ecclesiastes that Eliana said earlier. This just is a cycle of meaningless. Nothing on this earth is worth anything. It's all meaningless. And when you look at your life and you don't have Christ in it, what's the point? Why are we here on this earth if there's no God and we're just here to live our best life? That seems really meaningless to me. I think that without Christ, it's just pointless. And so that's why redemption and finding Christ and seeking after him is so important. If there's no end goal in mind, then what's the point of trying to get somewhere? with your life. If you're supposed to just live your life just to be happy while you live it, then why why does it matter? Why what is the bigger picture if you don't have an end goal? And I think that Gatsby is just stuck in trying to find um happiness and he thinks that's his purpose. He thinks his purpose is to find happiness. But it's really just um it's not working it's um just eating him up inside until he just can't stand it anymore and he's just really he's missing christ he's missing redemption and that's what he's need he needs that's what he's searching for and really nothing um none of his riches are ever going to be enough to give him redemption All right, so we're going to move on to our last book, and this one takes place, was written in 1956, but the setting is closer to ancient Greece, but it's not really a historical setting. It takes place in a kingdom called the Greek lands. Um, This is Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. So the story Um, weaves the biblical redemption story into the myth of Cupid and Psyche. Um, The narrator, Orwell, begins her life listening to her teacher named the Fox, who tells her that reason and the physical are all that's trustworthy. You can only trust what you can see and what you can feel. Um, Contrary to this, Psyche, Orwell's little sister, is entranced by the supernatural. She believes in all of the gods and she believes that there's a bigger picture and she strives to find these supernatural aspects of life. Um, In a long story put short, Psyche, the one who's entranced by supernatural, marries Cupid, who's a god, but she has to vow to never look at his face. Um, Orwell finds out about this little never look at his face thing and she thinks it is complete nonsense and she convinces Psyche to defy Cupid's orders and when Psyche does this she's sent away and Arval sees Cupid and she realizes that Psyche was telling the truth all along and that there was a god who was married to um psyche but she had ruined it all and then over the rest of the story she realizes that psyche's punishment was her fault and she eventually reaches rock bottom and then experiences redemption so she says 
when she's talking to Psyche originally before she sees Cupid that nothing that's beautiful hides its face. Nothing that's honest hides its name. And I think this is important to note because when she sees the world before redemption, she just sees it as something that she can only understand things that she can see and that she can touch. And if she can't see or touch this mysterious husband of Psyche's, then he's not really who he says he is. But um, after she sees Cupid, she says, he made it to be as if from the very beginning, I had known that Psyche's lover was a god and as if all my doubtings, fears, guessings, questions of Bardia, questions of the fox, all of the homage and business of it had been trumped up foolery, dust blown in my own eyes by myself. This kind of notes that she her, she realizes that she was the one who was not accepting it. She was the one who was trying to convince herself that she was the one who was right and that she was all that she could know and that there was nothing more to life besides her existence. I think the main point of this story goes is kind of a parallel to what people do in this world is they say that there's not a God because we can't see him and only what we can see and what is visible to us and what we experience can be taken for real. And what we really find is that everybody knows about God. Everybody in themselves um, have a knowledge of him and they're just neglecting it. And they don't see this right now, but I feel that just as Orwal finds this when she sees the God, that when we're standing before um, the judgment throne, they're going to be just in awe that they knew the whole time and that they were the ones that were pushing themselves away from the truth. Yeah, and I think um, faith really opens our eyes. And um, um, Hebrews 11 verse 1 really captures this. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So... Um, really, it requires faith for Psyche to um, trust that um, the god she's married to um, isn't some wild beast. Um, and she has to have faith without looking at his face. And even Orwal, when she goes to visit Psyche and she tries to find her, she can't see her house because she does not have that faith that Psyche has. So she thinks that Psyche is completely making this thing, whole thing up, but really Psyche is the one who has her eyes opened by faith. And another good point is that um, before Orwell finds redemption, she has to let the gods work within her um, as they do with Psyche, and that just shows that it's we can um, share the gospel all we want, but Ultimately, it's Christ who convicts a person and Christ who turns their heart towards him. Yeah, and I think this is the same as we see in Jane Eyre, who um, in, J in Jane's life, um, she says that when she's in the middle of a conflict, that she is forced to turn to Christ. And that's kind of the same thing with Orwell. She had to let the gods work in her heart first before she was able to find redemption. And that's the same for Jane Eyre. Yeah, another thing is we talked about 
people are most likely to search for redemption and make a change in their life when they hit rock bottom. And we see that Oral comes to the point where she says, I thought I had come to the very bottom and the gods could tell me no worse. So she just comes to the very bottom of herself. And then that's when she finds true redemption and that's when she finds the truth about the gods. She tries to change her heart and her longing and her passions by herself. Um, she covers her mask, her face in a mask and she hides from everyone. She doesn't let anyone see her face because she tries to put all of the things that she had wrong in her life and she tries to change them by herself, but she can't. So she eventually realizes she's got to have someone's help. So after she lets the gods work within her, she says, joy silenced me and I thought I had now come to the highest and the utmost fullness of being which human souls can contain. So she, her eyes are opened and she's allowed into the joy of being redeemed and she can have fellowship with Psyche and with other believers. Also, going back to the part where you talked about um, the veil she wears and her just hiding herself, I think that goes back to a theme that we've seen in multiple of the um, novels and plays that we've talked about is that um, mankind wants to hide their sin and they want to not let anybody else see that and I think that's kind of what Orwell was doing. She was confused and so she thought if I hide myself then no one will know and I can be this legend among among the people and they they can think up whatever they want about me and it's only when she allows the gods to work in her and allows the truth to be told to her then she can share in fellowship with the gods which for us would be Christ Yeah, and it's important that she has to turn to the gods first before she can find redemption. And um, she does the same thing that we have to do in our Christian walk. We have to, when we reach rock bottom, we realize we need Christ. And we need Christ's work in our life. And we can't do that by ourselves. Or while trying to fix um, her appearance, she tried to fix her outside by putting up a mask, a veil, to block out um, the truth. But really, she was just burying her sinful heart. And it's not until the gods worked in her life that she could really find redemption and have a rebirth. I think another good point is that um, Psyche is described as this beautiful child. She's almost like an angel or a god herself. Whereas Orwell is described in the book as ugly. And this just shows that... um, we, it doesn't matter. Your physical appearance doesn't matter. It's what's within and what, um, where you turn to is what truly matters. Yeah, and we see this in a lot of the books, like The Great Gatsby and um, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Everyone is concerned with their outward appearance, and they want to look the best they can, but um, really their outside appearance is just hide, hiding the depravity of their soul. I think it's really cool to see this theme of redemption throughout all the novels that we have read this year and to see that even in a story that doesn't seem like it has this type of story pattern that it is there and all these themes are weaved throughout the greatest novels and I think that just shows the truth about redemption and the truth about mankind and mankind's sinful nature. Yeah and authors never leave themselves behind in the page. 
um, these books all hold um, what the author believes inside of them. And so if all these authors are presenting the same themes, this must be the same for us too. We have the opportunity to either choose to have a redemption story for our life or we can choose to have a failed redemption story for our life. Um, all these books we've read either have redemption stories or failed redemption stories. Some have both. It's not a coincidence. All humanity sees life through the same story. We can find the gospel through these stories, and like Jane Eyre says, there are grains of truth in the wildest fables. If we can uncover the common threads pulling all these books together, we can find bits of truth that point us to the gospel.